Hey there, for the podcast, just a few stories that we covered on the weekend mornings with Raji's Sohal Sunday show. We're starting to see some pandemic restrictions lifted in BC, including at long-term care homes. Is it enough? CEO of the BC Care Providers Association, Terry Lake, weighed in. And bike repair shops have had it with a breed of useless bikes they're calling built to fail. Bikes that have cheap plastic parts that can't be fixed when they break, making them fit for the pit. And BC Liberals have selected their new leader. It's Kevin Falcon, and he was my guest. Let's listen in. Well, it was quite a night for the BC Liberal Party. They've selected Kevin Falcon as their new leader, and he won by a landslide victory over seven candidates who are running for the leader of the BC Liberal Party. And joining us right now on the line is Kevin Falcon. Good morning. Good morning, Raji. How are you? I'm great, but uh, how are you feeling? And congratulations. Well, thank you very much. I feel great. You know, it was, uh, we had a wonderful evening and I think, uh, you know, the result uh, was, was very humbling, but I appreciate that mandate because I think we've got, you know, a lot of change that we have to do as a party to make sure that we earn back the support and trust of British Columbians. And how easy is that going to be? Uh, it won't be easy. It's going to be hard work, but uh, at the end of the day, I'm comforted by one thing. And that is that I think the public, frankly, is getting tired of politicians who just promise they'll do this and that and say all the right words, uh, but actually aren't getting results on the ground. Um, Say what you will about uh, me when I was in government, uh, the grass didn't grow under our feet. You know, we built things like the sky trains and the Canada lines and the evergreen lines and hospital expansions and bridges and tunnels and all the rest of it because we were we understood how important it was that we get big things done. And I think that uh, what I've seen over the last almost five years of NDP government is nothing is getting done. And it's just time that we say to British Columbians, here's what we, what we want to do. Here's where we want to go. Here's how we're going to solve the challenges around housing affordability, climate change, and uh, childcare, et cetera, and get it done. And we will do that. And I think if we do that, um, we will earn back the support of British Columbians and they will elect a government that gets something done. So you said the NDP is not getting anything done. Um, they enjoy a lot of support from BC residents right now, currently. Um, what is it that they're not getting done that you would take care of? Well, I think it's it's the big thing. So they've been talking, for example, for five years about $10 a day daycare. Um, where is it, please? Uh, you know, how long does it take to actually do something like that? I mean, my goodness, the reason they're not getting it done is because they're driving 98% of the operators out there or private sector operators uh, that run daycares. They're women that uh, run these daycare centers and they're being pushed out of the business so that the NDP can have a government-run, unionized approach that will take decades before they ever get it uh, scaled across the province. Uh, And that's just, frankly, not acceptable. We've got to work with the not-for-profits. We've got to work with the private sector. We've got to have some government spaces, too. But we've got to move quickly. And I think that the challenge is that it's not that they're bad people or they don't mean well, because I think they do. It's just they don't know how to get big things done, whether it's childcare, whether it's action on the environment, whether it's housing affordability. Uh, That's another one, Roger. You look at housing affordability. 2018, they introduced a blizzard of new taxes on housing. They said that this was how they were going to solve the housing issue. And here we are four years later, and we've never had higher housing prices. And it's fundamentally because they don't understand what they're doing. You don't reduce housing prices by adding more costs. And, you know, that's something that they'll never understand because they've never come from a background that would inform them 
of how to solve these kind of problems. And I think the good news is we do have solutions to those problems. And I think that the public will like our solutions a lot more. Kevin Falcon, you were the front runner going into this campaign and, and you've held uh, portfolios in cabinet before with transportation, health, finance, and you left politics for a while, for 10 years to, to you said, spend time working uh, in private and spend time with your family. So what did your time away show you about politics that made you eager to get back in the game? Well, you know, honestly, uh, I left politics primarily for my kids. My eldest daughter was almost three at the time. My wife was pregnant with our second child. And I just thought to myself, you know, I, I want to I be a present dad. I don't want to be away from my kids as they grow up, especially in those critical young ages. But I'm coming back really for the same reason, not for them specifically, but for that generation. I am increasingly worried about what's happening at politics around the world, frankly. But even here in Canada, at almost every level of government, I'm, I'm seeing... Um, really just a lack of leadership and confidence and just the ability to get things done. And I think that if we don't have people that are prepared to step up and, you know, help get big things accomplished, then people are going to continue to lose faith and trust in the people that they elect. And I just think it's important that we get, you know, and, and I will try and do this to attract good people to run for office um, often the best people are people that don't want to run for office for a whole bunch of really good reasons, but try and convince them to do it for public service so that we can select the, the very best and the brightest and, and diverse group of candidates that we can put forward in front of British Columbians and say, this is a team that will work to get big things done for British Columbia. And I really believe we can do that. It'll take a lot of work. I'm under no illusions, Raji. We've got a lot of work ahead of us, but I'm prepared to roll up my sleeves and, and help get that done. When you look around today uh, at the protests, uh, the pandemic, are we in a new era of politics in BC? You know, I think we are. And, and I think, look, we've gone through a very difficult time with this pandemic. And I think, you know, frankly, the, um, I think the NDP government has, has managed this, uh, you know, reasonably well. I mean, I, I could critique some things, but I've been a finance minister in the past, so I'm, I'm reluctant to you know, weigh on and weigh in on issues like that, uh, except in a supportive way. But but at the end of the day, I'm really concerned about the mental health impacts of, of the population uh, going through, you know, two years now of this pandemic. People are getting really tired of it. British Columbians have been fantastic. We've all done our bit. There's over 90% vaccination. Uh, you know, we've, we've suffered through all the, you know, the slings and arrows of, of this pandemic. And I think people are really saying, listen, government, we want a timeline for how we're coming out of this, and we want to start to get back to normal. Put the protections in place for, for those most vulnerable populations for sure, but for the rest of us, let's get back to, you know, trying to get back to some sense of normalcy. And uh, that's what I think the, the public wants to see, you know, from their politicians. This uh, latest wave of uh, anti-vaccines and the protests and whatnot seems to be a very dividing issue for BC residents. What can government do about that? Well, I think it's, you know, again, this is what I said last night in, in, my, in my victory speech to the membership. It's important that we help bring the public together. And it's also important that we just not demonize people on both sides of the spectrum, that we just say, listen, we know it has been tough. We acknowledge how frustrated uh, people are, um, both the vaccinated and unvaccinated. And I think it's just important we try to bring people together and focus on the fact that 
We're all in this together. We're all going to get out of this together. And, and um, you know, I think if we, if we do that and we work together, work with the government where it makes sense to try and get us to a good place, um, that's, I think, what the public's expecting from us. Not to try and, uh, you know, encourage division, but try and bring us all together. And you think that you can do that with your leadership? Well, I think I can help. Look, I can't, you know, single-handed. I'm just one person. But, you know, we've got a very competent caucus of 28 individuals that, that do a great job in their respective communities. And I think that one thing that you will notice is that they have worked very cooperatively with government, forgetting the partisan politics, and said, look, during this pandemic, let's work together and try and get things done for the benefit of the province. And I would argue that at some great personal expense, uh, we lost the last election when, you know, the NDP government decided to, you know, tear up the law that said we're going to have fixed election dates, a law that we brought in to avoid that kind of cynical opportunism. But, uh, you know, they called an election in the middle of the pandemic anyhow, in spite of that law, and that cost the B.C. Liberals a lot of seats. But they were doing the right thing. They were saying, you know what, this is a time when we work with government. We don't oppose them on an issue around pandemic, that we try and bring the public together and along with us. And I'm proud of them for doing that, even at their own expense. Okay, Kevin Falcon, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you so much for having me. Have a wonderful morning. New visitation rules have been announced at long-term care facilities, but families of seniors are asking for the restrictions to be relaxed even further. Joining us now is Terry Lake, CEO of the BC Care Providers Association. Good morning, Terry. Good morning, Raji. Thank you so much for taking the time on this Sunday morning. So what are the latest rules? Well, uh, starting January 1st, when uh, Omicron was uh, really raging, uh, the visitation was restricted to essential visitors only. Uh, That lasted for about four or five days. And then uh, single uh, social visits were allowed if they were uh, screened with a rapid test. That... um, was a bit problematic for a number of reasons. Number one, in an outbreak, uh, then all visitation uh, of social visitors was shut down, and we just didn't have enough rapid tests to go around. So uh, mm-hmm. last week, uh, Dr. Henry announced that every resident in long-term care is entitled to an essential visitor uh, if they uh, you know, have qualified for one, because there's a bit of a process that you have to go through to meet that, that criteria. And then everyone is also allowed a single designated uh, other visitor, so even in an outbreak. So that means that seniors uh, in care homes uh, at least have some visitation going on, even in the face of a, of a COVID outbreak. So, you know, that connection with family has been maintained, which is very good news. Okay. How are these latest rules affecting the families? Well, you know, it's been a terrible, terrible time over the last nearly two years for families of of those in care, as well as for the residents in care themselves. And also, I should say, for the staff that, you know, have become de facto family for many residents as they have been separated from their loved ones. When we were going through the early waves of COVID, um, you know, without vaccines, it was necessary to really limit activities and visitation in care homes. Once we have the vaccines in place, uh, you know, the, the, the concern was lessened, uh, but we still have periods of time in outbreaks, for instance, when, when uh, visitation was, was shut down and activities were shut down. So you can imagine what it's like, someone worrying uh, for their, their aged loved one, whether it's your father, or your mother, uh, your grandparent, 
that uh, they they see them and uh, you know deteriorating mentally and physically. So it's been a source of really really uh, uh, high anxiety for a lot of families of lo- of uh, people in care. So they can't wait uh, for this Omicron to to subside and increase uh, visitation opportunities even more than what we have now. And I'm hopeful that'll happen, you know, within the next few weeks. In to your mind, what what's an ideal situation for visitation? What would you like to see visitation look like? Well, I think it's always a balance, and Dr. Henry has said this, a balance between quality of life for residents so that they can continue social activities within the home, they can continue to have some visitation, versus the danger of the uh, of the virus. And so striking that balance has been difficult at times with the changing virulence of the virus with different variants. Um, and, uh, you know, with more and more vaccination uh, taking place, you have you have to adjust that balance. So I think we're at the we're at an okay place at the moment, Raji, with uh, everyone allowed to have you know an essential visitor and a designated visitor. Uh, but it it you know we just can't wait to get back to the time when you can drop in kind of unannounced, uh, see your family member in care, bring your your kids uh, or the grandkids, uh, and uh, and have that really quality family time. And just checking you know what's happening in in the U.S., in the northeast of the U.S., where we see Omicron kind of struck earlier. Uh, In that part of um, North America, the virus levels are down to where they were in the first week of December. So it's come down really quickly. And while it uh, rose at a later time here on the West Coast, uh, we can't expect that dramatic fall to occur as well. So I'm hopeful by the end of February, uh, you know, towards Family Day, which would be super appropriate, we can open up uh, care homes to almost normal situation of visiting and activities. Yeah, you talked about essential visitor as well as a designated visitor. What's the difference there? Yeah, and this has been a source of um, frustration, I think, for a lot of people. The definition of an essential visitor is um, someone who uh, is caring for the resident in, in a way that can't be done by staff. So, uh, you know, they have to apply to the care home to be designated an essential visitor. And it basically means that if that visit doesn't occur, the physical and mental well-being of the resident uh, is uh, clinically declining. Now, that's a really tough call to make. As you can imagine, there are some objective measures that you can use for that, but a lot of it is subjective. And, you know, it's easy yeah. to argue that any any visit is going to increase the the, the social well-being, the physical well-being of the resident. But it puts the onus on the care home operator to make that decision, and it has to go into the care, uh, the resident's uh, uh, care plan. And, uh, you know, you have to justify it to the licensing authorities and the medical health officer. And uh, our operators uh, are without any kind of liability insurance because insurance companies right. will not cover infectious diseases anymore. So it, it, it causes all kinds of concern among operators that leads to some bad feelings perhaps with family members that uh, you know may not have achieved that essential visitor status so we've asked for you know simplification of that definition but instead what we got was a, a designated visitor on top of the essential visitor so the effect is the same i think or at least similar and uh, and you know we're uh, happy at least that we have uh, that that ability to have the visits uh, resume okay well thank you so much for sharing your thoughts with us this morning terry Thanks for having me, Raji.
Well, imagine taking your bike into the shop to get it fixed, but the mechanics say they can't do it. Built to fail bikes, as mechanics have taken to calling them, often have plastic parts or connected pieces that cannot actually be taken apart for repair or replacement. Sarah Thomas is the shop manager at our community bikes in Vancouver, and she joins us on the line now. Good morning, Sarah. Good morning. So Sarah, I think that although this sounds like a relatively common thing, a lot of people don't know about it. So what are these built-to-fail bikes like? Like, what are you seeing in the shop? Yeah, it's a real challenge. So as as bike mechanics and community bike shop, we're oriented towards helping people fix their bikes and replacing the components that have worn out with new components so that the bike is good to go again. And part of the issue that we're seeing with the built-to-fail bikes is components that just can't be fixed. So when people come in and they just, you know, want to give it a tune-up, it's not that easy because components that traditionally we could just, you know, take out and grease the bearings and put the hub back together now is not always possible. Wow, how frustrating for someone who fixes bikes. So how common are these built-to-fail bikes? Well, I mean, it's getting more common, and certainly with the pandemic, we've seen a rise of them. Um, and I'm not sure if part of that is like because people are like more people who didn't maybe bike before of thinking, oh, like let me grab a bike. Um, a combination, perhaps, of that and just like more of them on the market um, in department stores and whatnot, which is, yeah, a real problem and sad for people when they come in and they're so excited, you know, they've got this bike, but then now it's broken. Um, so it's really unfortunate situation. So what happens to those bikes? Well, there's not much we can do. So I think, I mean, ultimately they'll end up getting scrapped if they, you know, just can't get done because there's, I mean, the cost of repairing them often is, is just like way more than even buying a good bike. <laughs> oh, so that's awful. Yeah. And just to think of all that waste, I, you know, I've only had old bikes. I've never owned a brand new bike. Um, mm-hmm. So my bikes are made in the seventies or eighties um, in Japan, or I've got some, I've had Italian made bikes, but they're old. And you're not talking about old bikes though. You're talking, I guess somewhat ironically about new bikes that have been built to fail. Why would a manufacturer bother to make such a you know big awkward hunk of metal to fail i mean i think that's what we're seeing with uh, just manufacturing in general around is like this push towards a shorter lifespan of products in the name of making money uh which is certainly part of the illusion where people see oh you know we can get this bike for maybe two hundred dollars uh and so on the outside, it looks like it's a more affordable option. But then when you really look at the fact that that bike is only lasting maybe 90 hours of riding, then you have oh. to purchase a new bike. That's just like that's a false affordability because when if you purchase a bike like you're talking about these bikes from the 70s or um, when you have, you know, steel frame bikes and the components are all metal and they kind of fit together and you can take them apart and you can put them back together. Um, then you can purchase a used bike because if someone's finished with their bicycle, it still has life. Um, yeah. And also if you ride your bike as a means of transportation and you're using it heavily, 
going from place to place, then that bike still has integrity and you can just replace the components that are needed and you're good to go. And so over time, that cost to the consumer is far less. Um, But on the day you purchase that capital cost of like, I'm buying a bike, that cost, you know, that's kind of that illusion. Yes. But these bikes, these ones that are built to last, uh, they're very expensive. Good bikes are not cheap. So what are consumers supposed to do? I don't know many people that can just, you know, on a dime quickly drop um, $1,000 or more on a good bike. Well, and a good bike doesn't have to be that expensive. Certainly, there's also looking at options of used bikes. So at our community bikes, we focus on used bikes entirely. And so refurbish bikes that people are finished with that they donate to us and they say, you know, I'm done with this. Um, you can, you know, do what you can with it. And so then we'll take apart the parts that are no longer usable, put on, you know, components that do work and build up these bikes that are completely refurbished and good to go. And so there's many other shops also that, you know, maintain used bikes and other community bike shops in Vancouver as well. And then like part of what you're saying, you know, if like these bikes that are older, like they keep going. So that ability to get a used bike maintains itself. And so that is a more affordable option than buying a brand new bike now. See what I'm Yes. And so I think a lot of people are going to hear this. And, and for example, if they've bought uh, a bike for a young person who, you know, changes, uh, they grow, <laughs> they mm-hmm. need, they grow, they grow taller, they need bigger bikes. And so um, what's a person supposed to do in that case? They're buying a bike for their kid or their grandkid. Yeah. So, I mean, there's options. Certainly when with children's bikes and the sizing changing so frequently, then there is less, there's just less miles being put on a bicycle um, because they do get, you know, older and then need a new bike. So that's something, I mean, certainly there is still used bike options and having a bike that is a little bit sturdier and um, parts that can be replaced still exists. Um, And there are, kind of like a used bike library, for instance, at the bike kitchen out at UBC, they maintain a used bike library so people can trade in their used, um, the smaller size bike to get the bigger size bike. And so for smaller children, there are some of those kind of options around in the city for sure, which helps make sure that children have access to those bikes um, and can upgrade to the bike that kind of works for their size as they get older. Um, And so again, it's, you know, if we, when people are looking for bikes, looking for bikes that are going to be, have the integrity and be able to stick together, like look for components that maybe, you know, if there's a hole in the frame, for instance, like welding, sometimes the welding's not as um, good on some of these built to sell bikes or looking for headset, making sure that the components are metal. Um, then some of those bikes will be able to last longer. And then if they are looking to, you know, resell it after, for instance, there is potential resale value rather than a built to sale bike that's just going to be, you know, finished there. So there's those different, you know, um, things to pay attention to. 
Okay. Well, thanks for teaching us about that today, Sarah. Mm-hmm. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Weekend Mornings with Raji Sohal podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And you can listen to the show live on 980 CKNW from 6 to 9 a.m. every Sunday. Have a great week.